Blink Radio for the Concrete Conservative Minute instead of Concrete Conservative Hour. We've got about three minutes before we start the Statues and Story Hour. And I wanted to share with you here on WSQF Blink Radio Key Biscayne on the website WSQFRadio.com worldwide. A wonderful experience I experienced last night. Last night was the end of an incredible uh, Cuban legacy story. My mom and dad were Cuban refugees. They each arrived in Miami uh, via plane, 60 and 61. My mom left Cuba through the Czechoslovakian embassy and uh, resided in Jamaica for about six months. And my father came through the notorious Pan Am flights with his mother and settled in Miami. He had been to Miami often on work-related activity as a young teen working both sides of the hotel business as either a bellboy or a gopher or front desk concierge, oftentimes working in the kitchen, oftentimes painting hallways as a teen till about 19 years of age. And it served him well because he learned quality control of fruits and vegetables and uh, for, you know, the kitchen in these hotels on both sides of the Florida Straits. Anyway, last night was kind of like the end of his legacy in terms of the American Dream story because we sold his house that he purchased for $233,000 and we sold it for $8 million. From 1975 to 2021, we were basically raised there. And I had like a reawakening being raised once again, taking care of my mom with Alzheimer's. So end of the story is that it was a last sunset. And guess what? My mom would not have a last sunset. She had instead, sunset never came down. So what she had instead was an orange moon the worm moon. How appropriate for my mother from heaven, who never was really crazy about the sunset, as I'm not crazy about the sunset, because although they're beautiful and they're serene and they're relaxing, we used to end the day with a sunset, but having it in your home on the ocean facing south, you can imagine that sun barreling into the house, so oftentimes you find yourself in a shutter, under behind shutters, and as I was. Super hot. Super hot. So with that, I say rest in peace, pain in full, mom and dad. It was a wonderful, wonderful ride. Thank you for coming to the greatest country in the world on a free ride. It's now the Statues and Story Hour. Back How are you rock, today? You hear me? Is this Adam, Statues and Story Adam? Please let me know uh, that that is true. It is you. How you doing, Manny? I'm doing just fine. I was reminiscing the last days of uh, my... Parents, uh, hurrah here in the States, uh, was ending with the sale of their home. So I was reminiscing right before you came on. So uh, today we got something really remarkable that I'm really impressed that you're connecting some kind of dots, which is the comparison between Ronald Reagan and his similarities to Jefferson, which I don't think anybody can do but you. And Statues of Stories, 94.5. 
WSQF, Blink Radio, and of course, always live stream once again for those who like to listen to Adam from afar. I believe a lot of Adam's friends in New York listen to us on WSQF or radio.com. So have at it, Adam. That was fantastic comparison. I'm dying to hear. All right. So what we're doing tonight, and everybody who is a listener of the show understands, as Manny just pointed out, there are many ways you can listen. You can listen to us live, which might be maybe you're doing that now. You can listen to the podcast, and uh, Manny gave the, the web address for the, for the podcast on WSQF. Or you can go and follow along with us on statutesandstories.com, which is the website that I'm affiliated with. And that's what we do here is we look at primary sources. We look at letters back and forth between the founding fathers and mothers. We look at other documents. We look at laws. And we try to tell the story of history, not what we, you or I think about history, but what the, the, the evidence is, what the documents say. Uh, you know, because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I also uh, sometimes refer to some of the books that we use and we put together some of the laws that we use and we put together a blog post. So today we've got a book in my hand by Sean Condon about Shays Revolution. This is from just a couple of years ago. And I'll mention throughout the evening some of the other books that, uh, that we refer to. Those are secondary sources. But primarily we're going to be looking at letters. And when kids are in middle school and high school, they learn that Shays Rebellion started in 1786, ended in 1787, and the timing was such that it was important because it was a wake-up call that told the founding fathers and mothers that they need to fix the problems with the articles because you had this chaos, this anarchy that broke out, which we'll talk about tonight in Massachusetts. So it was a wake-up call for the Constitutional Convention. So the kids know that story, and that's nothing new. That, that's but, the famous Shays Rebellion in, in Massachusetts? Yes. That Shays Rebellion in 1786, and they, they squash it, and they, they, they put an end to it in 1787, and it got a little violent, and we'll go into some of the details. So, you know, that, that background is, is nothing new. But what I want to focus on, once we cover some of the background, is what did the founding fathers, those who wrote the Constitution, because this was on their mind when they were in Philadelphia, what did they actually think about Shays Rebellion? Because as Manny mentioned, because you looked ahead at the, at the blog post, and I... Oh, come on. It was, I, 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 it was a dream, Adam. I knew it in a dream. <laughs> so I invite people. That's the, the reason for this show is I want people to go to the website and to look at the material. Don't take my word for it. Click on the links because whenever I mention a letter from uh, Henry Knox, who was the Secretary of War, to George Washington, I give you a link so people can read the actual letter. And when people talk about Washington as a leader, this comes out. It oozes out of his writings and his letters. And you're going to see that as we talk about some of this today. But um, there is a very famous quote. So let's, just so people know what we'll talk about at the end, there's a very famous quote from Jefferson. And those who are revolutionaries or who are in a revolutionary mindset, you could be the Tea Party. You could be other moments in history where the government is bad and people are standing up. There's a very famous Jefferson quote. And that Jefferson quote comes out of, and Jefferson was in Paris at the time, so he wasn't in Massachusetts during Shays' Rebellion, so he was safe in Paris. Uh, you know, Paris would have its own revolution a couple years later in 1789, but uh, there's a very famous quote from Jefferson, so we're just we're planting the, the seed that we're going to come back and we're going to talk about that. We have the flag up, so people know we're going to talk about that famous Jefferson quote, which Reagan liked also. So I, I very rarely talk about modern history, but uh, that's a good connection that you're making between Jefferson and Reagan with, with regard to this idea of tax protests and Shays' Rebellion. And, so and for a moment, and a, wait a minute, for a moment of reminiscence, I would like to go back to, I also made earlier apropos, and very apropos for, for Mac on the Rock and Bling Radio, a connection between Reagan, Bush, and my father, and the letter I sent you that you haven't read yet. And that is for the end of the story. But I sent okay, you a letter that, that I found. Today? 
I found. Oh, okay. uh, I know that letter. The letter you sent about a week ago or two. Yes. Imagine yeah. that. How fitting our story today. You're really taking a you know a launch, a stretch between Reagan and Jefferson, and I think it was a real stretch uh, to comp- you know similarity between Bush, Reagan, and my dad in a letter written by Bush to my dad that I find in the archives of 1980 in a closet and an accordion under B. I mean, come on. What a chance of me finding that before it was all disposed of and shredded. But we will not interrupt you further. Please well, continue. Well, that makes sense. B for Bush. B for Bush, yes. B for Bush. And, and, I, went, and, and, I, went, and I went page by page for decades. I mean, I went through all the decades uh, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 10, and 2020. Uh, that's what I've been doing for the whole week, just going just page by page. I'm talking about every FPNL bill, every Comcast bill, Adelphia before Comcast. You can, you name it. My father kept it in paper for fear that he might need it later. You know, there was no computer. So that's the life I've led for the last week. And it's I'll tell and you it's, another <laughs> reason it may have been under B. So B was the bicentennial, the country, 1776, we celebrate the bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence. But in 1983, during Reagan, was the bicentennial of Shays Rebellion, and people actually celebrated that. So, oh, very to, we're, cool. We're going to go into a lot of detail tonight. I also want to point out that, that we happen to have some letters tonight from women. So we're going to be talking about Abigail Adams, what she thought about Shays Rebellion. We're going to talk about Mercy Otis Warren. We're going to talk about her. She was a, a famous uh, poet, and she was uh, well ahead of her time. She was a historian. She wrote a three-volume history of the American Revolution, and she lived in Massachusetts at the time. So uh, we're going to get to get into some of the, the correspondence back and forth of uh, these founding fathers and mothers. They were concerned about Jay's Rebellion because for the reasons we're going to get into, this was this was important news of the day. Well, get so, into it, man. Come on. Let's jump in. So we, we start, and people can follow along with me. I'm not going to read it, but we'll paraphrase some of it. So beginning in the fall of 1786 until it was crushed in early 1787, Shays Rebellion made national headlines. And if these exaggerated newspaper reports, there were about 100 newspapers at the time from Maine all the way down to Florida wasn't a state, all the way to Georgia. So if these exaggerated newspaper reports were to be believed, what began as a local tax protest, and we're going to talk about some economics tonight, the economics behind these tax protests, these indebted farmers in western Massachusetts were threatening widespread anarchy and the collapse of the American Confederation. And the reason we're calling it a confederation is we didn't have the Constitution yet. We were operating under the Articles of Confederation. But I asked the question, what did these individuals who wrote the Constitution, the framers or the founders, what did they think about Shays Rebellion, which was all over the newspapers in the 1786, early 1787 timeframe? What did the founders think? So historians who studied this founding generation universally agree, pretty much all historians agree, that Shays' Rebellion was what we called it earlier, a wake-up call that exposed the inadequacies of the Articles of Confederation and was a catalyst for the adoption of the Constitution, which, as we all know, was written starting in May of 1787 through September of 1787. So Shays' Rebellion came right before the Constitution, which is why it was important in the chronology of how we got the Constitution. So the early rumblings of Shays' Rebellion were evident in September of 1786, when the Annapolis Convention, and we talked about the Annapolis Convention last week, the Annapolis Convention was in Maryland, but Maryland doesn't even send a delegation to that convention. Only five states come. We talked about last week how Hamilton and Madison uh, convinced those who attend that, yes, 
don't treat this as, uh, as a lemon, make lemonade out of it. So they called for another convention after the Annapolis Convention to be the Constitutional Convention in May, and con- the Congress bought into it because, for reasons we're talking about, Shays' Rebellion got everybody worried that things are beginning to, to you know, fall apart at the seams. So in September, when the Annapolis Convention was meeting for three days, and meeting without a quorum, I should say, Shays' Rebellion was beginning to uh, pick up steam. And we'll describe how it started and what it was about. And then the bloodiest moment of Shays' Rebellion, which was in January of 1787, January 25th, when he led us an attack on the federal armory in Springfield, Maryland, because these were farmers who had pitchforks and they had knives and some of them had swords. Some of them may have had weapons left over from the Revolutionary War, but they didn't have much gunpowder and they didn't have heavy weapons. So they wanted access to that armory. So that is the bloodiest day of Shays' Rebellion, January 25th. 1787, and we'll talk about the attack on that armory in Springfield. So that occurred, and we'll talk about it. So from that point, when that occurred on January 25th, the state legislatures in the 13 states had already begun to decide whether or not they want to send delegates to the Constitutional Convention. And when you connect the dots, news of Shays' Rebellion is all over the papers, and lo and behold, the states agree to send delegates, 12 of them, all except for Rhode Island, which on this show we call Rogue Island, all send, except for Rhode Island, send delegates to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention. So we're going to be looking at private correspondence in Shays' Rebellion when you look at letters to Washington. And Washington, remember, had retired to Mount Vernon after 1783, after the Treaty of Paris was signed, and he thought he'd be retired to live his life in, I don't know if you want to call it luxury, but you know, to, to be in charge of his plantation and to, to be retired, a Cincinnatus, meaning that you, you walk away from the government and you retire as a general. So um, you know, he gets letters from Henry Knox, who was the Secretary of War at the time, and others that we'll talk about. And when you read these letters, they were really concerned. So the concern over Shays' Rebellion, I would argue, and it's not me, other historians also, think that this was one of the primary motivations that coaxed Washington out of retirement at Mount Vernon, because he realized that his legacy, that the what they fought so hard for during the eight or so years of the American Revolution, was devolving into chaos, and Shays' Rebellion was the chaos that they were afraid of. So the subject of Shays' Rebellion, now to talk about popular culture a little bit, even spawned a 12-installment mock epic poem. And you don't get to say that very often, a mock epic poem, which was called the Anarchiad. And I have a link if anyone wants to read it. So in the newspapers in Connecticut back then, people are familiar with the Iliad. So the Iliad is a story about a journey. So here they use the word anarch, meaning anarchy, and iad, the story about anarchy was this epic poem, sort of in the tradition of a Homer, using the characters from shows from Shays' Rebellion. Daniel Shays, we'll talk about Daniel Shays, who was a captain in the Revolutionary Army, and he was one of the leaders of Shays' Rebellion. He wasn't the only leader, but his name stuck, and it was then called Shays' Rebellion. So we'll talk about him. But he was written about in the papers, not just because people were concerned about this anarchy and this revolution that was taking place, but also because there was this, uh, as we said, this 12-volume installment of poems that were telling this uh, the story about anarchy called the Anarchiad, making fun of uh, Greece and uh, of anarchy, which uh, is not a good thing when, when you're, you're on the, the verge of, uh, of uh, and we'll talk about what anarchy means in this context. All right, so in the month before the Constitutional Convention begins, Shays' Rebellion wound up influencing James Madison. So Madison was one of the most important people leading into the Constitution because he did a lot of preparation, and he wrote what we refer to here as an influential critique of the Confederation Congress, and I smile when I use this word, but historians refer to it as Madison's vices. 
And Madison was a very plain spoken, you know, he didn't have any vices, but the book that he wrote or the pamphlet that he wrote, which we brought with him to the Constitutional Convention, was called Vices of the Political System of the United States. So when historians refer to Madison's vices, they're not talking about Madison's bad habits. Uh, because he wasn't a drinker, he was a very quiet guy, although he dressed in black, and if you looked at him, uh, he's a little gothic, some people might say, but um, very plain spoken. But Madison's Vices refers to his, you know, the homework that he did, the critique of the articles. So he refers to Shays' Rebellion in his, in his vices that he prepared the month before the Constitutional Convention during the ratification campaign. So they write the Constitution in September, it gets signed, but then it has to be ratified before it would take effect in 1789. And that ratification process is when Hamilton, Madison, and Jay are writing the Federalist Papers and others are writing essays. So during the ratification campaign, when the 13 states have to ratify, you need nine to agree. Jay's Rebellion was repeatedly cited by Federalists, including Hamilton in Federalist Number 6 and other places. So it appears that the only prominent framer, let me say that again, the only prominent framer, and we mentioned him earlier, who downplayed, quote, the Little Rebellion, was Thomas Jefferson, who was the American ambassador in France at the time. So again, we planted our flag. We're going to come back to Jefferson while he didn't think a little revolution was such a bad thing. We now have to go to the website. Is that the hint? Is that the hint in comparison to Reagan? Don't get lost in the message. So we, we will talk about Jefferson and Reagan and save time at the end. So if anyone is following along on the website, I have a a magazine etching because we didn't have pictures back then and they they never did you never had a, an artist like a copley or some of the other famous artists do a portrait of shays because he was a poor farmer but uh, there are etchings and as it turns out the etching of shays and jacob sat or job shattuck was one of the other leaders uh were, were put into one of these uh, illustrated newspapers an etching but uh, apparently the artist who made it had never seen shays so you can't rely on this etching as being what he actually looked at but that's a famous picture uh, that, that's usually shown in the textbooks of what shades look like. But again, that's probably not what he really looked like. It's just an etching. All right, so the post that I, that I prepared, and next week we'll maybe do part two of the post, is divided into two parts. So part one, I'm going to be talking tonight about an overview of Shays Rebellion from the perspective of the founders. I also discussed the economics, because it's important to understand the economics of Shays Rebellion to summarize and understand what was going on. And this also relates to Reagan, that you don't do tax increases uh, during a recession. In fact, that's part of the problem that Massachusetts will talk about was imposing very heavy taxes, which led to Shays Rebellion. One of the reasons for Shays Rebellion is the farmers were losing their land, they were losing their property. So we're going to talk tonight about how Shays Rebellion was suppressed by General Lincoln, who was one of George Washington's leading lieutenants. He was a major general during the war. And we'll talk about how they wound up defeating Shays and restoring order. And the next week, and I have not written it yet, but part two of this post, We'll talk about the laws that resulted during Shays' Rebellion. So it wasn't just the tax protests that led to Shays' Rebellion. It was also the way that Massachusetts reacted by passing several very onerous laws. Massachusetts uh, suspended habeas corpus, the state of Massachusetts, or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Also, Massachusetts adopted a militia act. They adopted a riot act. And uh, some of these laws were were very harsh. And uh, we'll talk about that next week. But I haven't written that up yet. These are draconian laws that probably backfired and only made things worse. Uh, and then, as it turns out, the governor during Shays' rebellion, and we'll talk about him, he wound up, uh, without giving away too much of the details, winds up getting defeated. And another governor, governor comes in, and people who are familiar with this name, John Hancock. So John Hancock gets elected after Shays' rebellion, and he's more sympathetic to the Shayzites, is what they call themselves. The supporters of Daniel Shay were the Shayzites. Uh, so as it turns out, Hancock... And the new legislature who gets elected are a lot more sympathetic to Shays 
even after the rebellion is suppressed. Well, well let's uh, give us a little hint of what type of person Shea was and why he was able to rally his supporters into a rebellion. Okay, so we're going to get into the economics, but that's a good point. So Shea is, as far as we know, is generally a good guy. He was a, a fighter. He was a, a poor uh, farm laborer prior to the Revolutionary War. Uh, he realized that going off and fighting was a patriotic thing to do, and he was good organizing men in, in military times. He was a good drill sergeant, if you will. He rose up through the, length, the, the ranks. He fought in the Battle of Saratoga. He fought at Lexington and Concord. And uh, he rose all the way up to become, I want to say, either a lieutenant or a captain. I think it may have been a lieutenant. And, uh, you know, he, he leaves. Not all of the soldiers stayed throughout the entire war, but he eventually leaves. He's not happy that he's not getting paid. He winds up saving money after the war to buy a farm. He gets married and goes his merry way. But then you start having these economic problems that we're going to talk about. And uh, he's in jeopardy of losing his farm. And what a lot of these farmers realize, the way it would work is that the court would not always meet every week or every day like it is in today's modern times, where Monday through Friday you have court. Back then, the court would travel from county to county and uh, location to location. And the farmers would know when the court is coming. And if you're a debtor, now, that's not a good thing when the court is coming into town if you have creditors that are going to foreclose on your property. And another thing was that people could not vote as a general rule back then. This is 1783 unless they own land. And if you're a farmer who had saved and you were, you know, I don't want to use the Revolutionary War too much as an example, but if you were owed money and there were, there were IOUs from the government that owed these people money and the government wasn't paying because the government didn't have any money back then, there are all kinds of financial problems we'll talk about. So Shays is a uh, jeopardy of losing his, uh, his land. And what the farmers realize is if they shut down the courts, the courts can't take away your, can't take away your cattle and your land. They also can't put you in debtor's prison, which was a problem back then, because the creditor could insist that you go into debtor's prison. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit later uh, today or, or also next week. And so another point, Manny, because he asked about if Shea was a good guy, he was a, enough of an accomplished commander during the Revolutionary War that our good friend Lafayette, the friend of Hamilton, Lafayette was almost the second son to Washington. Lafayette was the, the, the son of a, of, a, of a French commander who was killed during the French and Indian War. Lafayette came to America before the French were effectively part of the fight, but he came to help the Americans because he hated the British so much in a way to get revenge for his father's death, and he was sympathetic to the revolution. So, uh, so Lafayette awarded ceremonial swords to a lot of the commanding officers in the, in the Continental Army, and Daniel Shays was given a, a sword by Lafayette for his bravery and as an appreciation by Lafayette. And interestingly, because economic times were so bad, Shays wound up selling the sword that was given to him by Lafayette. Imagine you're an American soldier that fights courageously in uh, Iraq and you get your medal uh, or whatever you get you know, from, uh, from retiring from the military, God bless you. And if you're, you're forced from bad times to sell your flag and your medals, I mean, it's horrible. So that tells you how bad things were in Massachusetts, that he had to sell Shays. Daniel Shays, his uh, ceremonial sword that he was given by Lafayette. And a lot of people didn't like the fact that he sold it, but he didn't have any choice because the economic times that we'll talk about were so bad. So I'm now back on the website. These impoverished farmers in western Massachusetts, how did it start? They began by peacefully petitioning the state legislature for debt and tax relief. That's how it begins, peacefully petitioning the legislature, which met in Boston, that we've got debt problems, we've got tax problems, we need relief. But and maybe we'll do more about this next week, the legislature was primarily very wealthy, and many of them owned the debt, and they wanted the debt to be paid off. They were not sympathetic to the farmers. So when the legislature in Massachusetts failed to give the requested concessions, then what did the farmers do? 
and they took out their playbook from the Revolutionary War. They went into county conventions in these western counties in Bristol, in Middlesex, in Worcester, is how you pronounce it. And I always joke with my Massachusetts friends, it looks to me like Worcester, but it's Worcester. In Hampshire and Berkshire counties, you had these conventions that were held where the towns would meet and they would say, you're rejecting our petitions, and they were clamoring, you know, you're ignoring us in Boston. Uh, so they were trying to organize invoking what was referred to as the spirit of 76 from 1776 these farmer protesters they wore evergreen stems or, or i think they call it shrigs of evergreen in their tricolor their tri-pointed hats uh, so they would march to fife and drum and here i'm quoting that a large this is from a newspaper a large concourse of people occupied the hampshire courthouse on august 29th of 1786 so they would send petitions which were ignored they had their county conventions they were ignored then on august 29th this large concourse of people with the evergreen in their hair, which are symbolic, they basically march on like they lined up with the foam and drive, fife and drum rather, and they occupy the Hampshire courthouse in western Massachusetts, August 29, 1786, and it works. The court, uh, you know, when you've got farmers and they're mad and they're holding pitchforks and some of them are holding guns, uh, the, the judges realize, you know what, let's, uh, let's suspend the court for today. That's, that they, applies to today as well. That's a good question, and what, that's really the, one of the underlying issues. At what point, how do you, in a, in a democratic society, how do you resist tyranny? And I don't know that I have the answer to that question, but that's where Jefferson's going to come uh, from. Most people uh, on my side of the coin have a perfect answer, but we won't say, because what for? Okay, go ahead. Okay, and, and you have other hours where you know you can talk about that. I think that's a very important question in a democracy. You know, how do you? And these are issues that I talk about at the end of the post. How do you deal with, uh, you know, a responsible government trying to restore order, but also providing a safety valve for peaceful protest? But the problem was Shays' rebellion started peacefully, but it didn't end peacefully. So the script of taking over courthouses, forcefully taking over courthouses, was repeated in surrounding counties, and farmers realized that yeah, you can't be thrown out of their farms and sent to debtor's prisons if the courts were shut down. So at first, how did Massachusetts react? So the Massachusetts, the wealthy merchants and lenders, etc., and the politicians in Boston called out the local militias. But there's a problem, though. The problem was that the local militias, quickly, they realized, were very sympathetic to the protesters. And some of the militias either would not muster or they're potentially joining the protesters. So that doesn't work to call out the local militia because the local militia, these are their friends, right, that they're going to be trying to, to suppress. So what's the next step in the state of Massachusetts? Then ask the Confederation Congress for assistance. And this is why this becomes important politically. So they ask Congress, hey, we need some help here because these farmers are taking over our courts and they're uh, interfering with the administration of justice and uh, we need our taxes. And uh, this is, uh, you know, it's one thing when the British, who don't give us representation, are, um, you know, interfering with our rights. It's another thing, and we can talk about this later. Sam Adams had very strong opinions on this, that you should not, and this is what Massachusetts got into itself into this sort of conundrum, where uh, Sam Adams thought this should be a, a, a murder trial. We'll talk about this next week. That is a death penalty. If you do a, re a revolution in a democracy, the penalty for that, according to Sam Adams, which is ironic, we'll talk about next week, uh, he thought was, uh, it was murder, that uh, it should be the death penalty if you do an insurrection against your own government, because this is democratic government. Well, that's it. Well, that's if you lose. <laughs> that's if you lose. That's right. So what does Massachusetts do? It asks the Confederation Congress for assistance because it's starting to get the violent. 
And if you look at the Congressional Journal, and I have a link, people can actually read the Journal of the Confederation Congress. Congress feared, quote, this is from the Journal, in it's October of 1786, Congress feared that unless speedy and effectual measures were taken, the insurrectionists would, quote, possess themselves of the arsenal at Springfield, and I put in an ellipse, and not only reduce the Commonwealth to a state of anarchy and confusion, but probably involve the United States in the calamities of a civil war. So Congress, in the Congressional Journal, is worried about a civil war breaking out, because if the farmers in western Massachusetts can do this, there are people who are sympathetic to them in western Pennsylvania, and that would come up again during the Whiskey Rebellion under, under Washington in 1795 time frame. So uh, there are other states where poor farmers were also looking to the Shays Rebellion. Can we do this also? And some of them were taking the position that we wanted leveling. We wanted the sharing of wealth. And uh, some of this can be very similar to communism if you're to take property from the wealthy and divide it up evenly. So that, that was some of the, the, the threads that were taking place among the Shaysites. Some of them did just you, wanted did to you be— say, Did you say communism or the Democratic Party? What, what did you say again? So you said communism. Were, and a lot of this may have been rhetoric, too, but uh, there was concern, and you know the media gets involved fan, fanning the flames, so uh, there was concern about this could devolve into, and uh, again, I told you. This so basically, same as it always was, <laughs> basically. They, they, Congress was concerned, and I quoted it to you, about confusion and possibly calamities of a civil war. That's Congress in October of 1783. So what does Congress do? And this is where, you know, take notes. It tells you how bad it was economically in 1786. Congress commissions $500,000 of loans for an army to suppress the, quote, dangerous insurrection. That is Congress. This is a dangerous insurrection. We're going to raise $500,000. There's a problem, however. The problem was that the Confederation Congress doesn't have money. The Confederation Congress begs to the states, and the states have been delinquent in paying their obligations to Congress in the first place. Only one state, which was the largest state, Virginia, agreed to raise money to, for a federal army to help fight in Massachusetts. So when only Virginia is the only state that's willing to give money, basically Massachusetts is now left on its own to fend for itself. So what does Massachusetts do? The problem Massachusetts also has is Massachusetts is insolvent. So Congress is insolvent in, I won't say in Washington, but in New York is where the, the Confederation Congress is meeting at the time. So the Congress is, is broke, bank, and the Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts is bankrupt, so what are they to do? So the political establishment in Boston, who is worried about these farmers run amok, who are taking over the, the western part of the state, passes a series of retaliatory laws, the Riot Act, which calls for murder or the death penalty, the Sedition Act, also very harsh laws we'll talk about next week. But rather than deterring the insurrectionists, and we can call them different things, we can call them rebels, we can call them insurrectionists, we can call them Shavites. These repressive laws and the suspension of habeas corpus, Lincoln did it also, by the way, suspended habeas corpus, probably exacerbated Shays' Rebellion. So they called themselves regulators. And they took that from in North Carolina, there was corruption during the British in the 1760s, and these became folk heroes, the regulators, sort of the Robin Hoods uh, who were standing up against corrupt administration during the colonial period in North Carolina. So the Shazites initially called themselves regulators, that they're regulating things in their own hands because they don't think the judges are corrupt. They think the lawyers are corrupt. So the protesters wound up recruiting former Revolutionary Army Captain Daniel Shays to assist with military training and organization. And the theory was that they could take the arsenal from the, the, the oh, I'll come back to the name of it, the location where the, the military the armament was stored, and that was in Springfield, then they may be able to march on Boston. That was the concern. 
So forced to take matters into their own hand, what do the more wealthy merchants and bankers and politicians do? And the answer is they raised a private army. That tells you how the state of Massachusetts couldn't even come up with an army. They raised a private army of 4,400 men to be led by Revolutionary War Major General Benjamin Lincoln. So here, Lincoln is no relationship to President Lincoln from the Civil War. This is Benjamin Lincoln, who was one of the commanders under Washington. And Lincoln wound up surrendering. And one of the, the biggest defeats of the war was when we lost Charleston, South Carolina. That was a very prosperous city. Uh, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, a lot of it had to do with slavery. Charleston was a very wealthy city, but it had a lot of control over South Carolina. It was a, a big port. Uh, so when the when we initially stopped the British in 1776 from taking Charleston, which is a big victory for the Revolutionary War, the British realized and they learned their lessons. They came back in 1780 and they captured Charleston. And more American troops were captured when Charleston was captured than I think any other battle during the war. Many of them might have dying in prison ships, etc. But uh, what's the point? The point is that Benjamin Lincoln wound up surrendering Charleston, but he got even because when uh, let's see, it was uh, Yorktown in 1781 when Cornwallis surrenders to Washington after the Battle of Yorktown. Washington, who thought he had been disrespected by Cornwallis, uh, insists that Cornwallis surrender to Lincoln, not surrender, in other words, give the sword and surrender. There's a ceremony that they did. So Cornwallis surrendered to Lincoln. So this is the same Benjamin Lincoln who was brought in to lead this private army of 4,400 men that were, that were brought in to take on the Shays Rebellion. So under Shays' leadership, we talked about the Shaysites attempted to capture the federal armory in Springfield in Massachusetts on January 25th. But what wound up happening was the lightly armed farmers were no match for the cannons that defended the armory. And when the defenders of the armory wound up firing into the crowd of the farmers, who were some of them armed with blades and pitchforks, some of them with their guns from left over from the war, um, you know, the armory was protected and they never got access to the arms inside the Springfield Armory. So that was one of the, the bloodiest days. It was January 25th, 1787. And just telling you what happened during the Revolution, Lincoln then arrives a couple of days later with his well-equipped army. The weather was horrible. They marched through the night, but they had, had provisions, whereas the Shays rebels, uh, who are now camping out in Pedersham, uh, I don't know how they pronounce it, probably with a Massachusetts accent, but that they wound up capturing much of Shays' soldiers in Pedersham. And uh, Shays and other leaders wound up escaping and fleeing to New York and Vermont, Vermont to get out of Massachusetts. But uh, within the next couple of months, there were sporadic, sporadic fights and skirmishes. But uh, the ragtag rebellion was really no match for Lincoln, who knew what he was doing with a real army and with supplies. So they, they fairly easily suppressed Shays' rebellion. Uh, but it did, did take a little bit of time. All right. So that's the background. So now what I talk about on the website, because I love looking at these old letters, as I start with James Warren. So James Warren was, during the Revolutionary War, he was president of the Massachusetts Provisional Congress. That was what it was called before they had their own independent Congress. So when they were resisting the British, they called it the Massachusetts Provisional Congress. He was the president. Right? He was also the paymaster for the Continental Army. So he was a, a prominent, the Warren family, and there are other Warrens that we've talked about in other nights. But James Warren, as I described, wrote a very famous letter to John Adams in 1786, April 30th of 1786. And they have the link so people can read it. So where is John Adams? John Adams is in England. He's our ambassador to London. And, of course, Jefferson is our ambassador to Paris. So James Warren, it's important to see what he's thinking because, you know, he knew what was going on in Massachusetts. And Warren was a prominent leader, as we said, and he writes this letter to John Adams from April 30th. And this is what Warren says, and I've got the, the link. He describes the, quote, extreme scarcity in Massachusetts, leading to, quote, confusion and anarchy. This is in April of 1786, before the revolution really takes off, the Shays Rebellion. 
And he describes this post-war depression is uh, going to lead to a debt crisis and farm foreclosures. And at the time, Adams, we said, was serving as our ambassador, our first ambassador to England. So now I'm quoting from the letter from James Warren. He says, and I won't read all of it, but he says, I know you wish to be informed of the situation of your beloved country. So Warren is telling you know, his friend, Adams, he says, the constant drain of specie, which means hard currency, gold and silver, to make remittances for baubles imported from England is so great as to occasion extreme scarcity. So he's complaining that people have bought, uh, after the war, they've bought luxury items, and all of our hard currency is now left to go to England because people would started buying, after the war, all kinds of luxury goods. And he describes, I'll skip to the end of his, of his letter, he says, interest is the great object and the only pursuit. And he's now talking about how everything seems diverging on confusion and anarchy and certainly great wisdom and address are necessary to prevent it. So he's seeing the writing on the wall, on the wall that no debts can be paid or taxes collected, and the first are severely demanded by multiple lawsuits and are becoming more necessary than ever. Um, so this, he's talking about how things are beginning to unravel in Massachusetts. He's letting Adams know. So what does Adams write back? Initially, John Adams was not too alarmed. Uh, even as the fa- farmers were shutting down courts in western Massachusetts, Adams would admit in a letter to, John, to Thomas Jefferson that the Massachusetts Assembly had probably been a little bit too aggressive in its effort to pay off the war debts with taxes. So Adams acknowledges that, yeah, Massachusetts probably shouldn't have been passing as many taxes as they did. But ultimately, Adams predicts that uh, the commotion is what he called it would eventually end, would end, and with additional strength, that's his language, additional strength being granted to the government. So Adams isn't too upset or too alarmed at first. He says it's eventually work its way out. And then I quote from Adams' letter from November of 1786. And he says, don't be too alarmed by the late turbulence in New England. The Massachusetts Assembly has in its zeal to get better of their debt, laid on a tax rather heavier than the people could bear. But all will be well, and this commotion will terminate in additional strength to government. So that's Adams' initial reaction in November of 1786. And remember, things are going to start really heating up as you get into December and January of 1786. Now I have a picture of Mary Otis Warren. Sorry, I said Mary, but it's Mercy. Mercy Otis Warren. And she is the wife of the Warren that we just mentioned, James Warren. And she was, in her own right, a very well-respected, she was a poet. She also wrote a history of the Revolutionary War. She was a commentator. She wrote under pseudonyms during the Revolution. So this is an example of how there were educated women, uh, especially in some of the cities, and I don't doubt in some of the farms also, you know, who was very outspoken and would participate in political conversations. So what did Mercy Owens, and she wrote to Jefferson also, what did she have to say? And I make the point that she understood both sides of the controversy. So Mrs. Warren was the wife, as we said, of James Warren. And in a letter to John Adams from December of 1786, she observes that Shays' Rebellion is now defying, quote, all authority. But she says that Massachusetts, this is the other side of the coin, had been drawing, this is her quote, drawing the reins of power too tightly. So she's saying that this is the reaction when you, when you, Draw a horse too tightly, the horse uh, tries to throw you off. So I'm not going to read from her letter in too much detail, but she's pointing out in this country lately armed for opposition to regal despotism. She's comparing this to uh, regal despotism. There seems to be on one side of the boldness of spirit that sets a defiance of all authority and government is out of order. Uh, There's not a secret wish only, but an open avowal of a necessity for drawing the reins too tight, she says, I quoted. Perhaps America is in the predicament of adventurous youth who have disengaged himself from parental authority. And she's saying, you have a friend here who equally incriminates the conduct of both parties. So she's blaming both. Massachusetts is taxing too much, but she's not also happy or she's worried about the, the Shays' Rebellion. And you can read her letter in more detail.
All right, what about Washington, Knox, and Lee? So now in the, in the website I'm talking about what, are, what loaders are going to Washington. What does Washington think? What does Knox think? And Light Horse Harry Lee, this is one of Washington's uh, relatives, I think, distant connection. And this is a, eventually is going to be the, the grandfather or great-grandfather, perhaps, of, of, uh, of another Lee during the Civil War, Robert E. Lee. But the, the Lee family in Washington, I'm going to say in Washington, in Virginia, is uh, you know, connected to Washington and Lee, William Henry Lee or Harry Lee. I was a member of Congress at the time. So we're going to talk about some of their letters. So while Washington retired to Mount Vernon, he was kept appraised of events in Massachusetts. And it's important that there are some very useful letters that were written to Washington by Henry Knox. So in the winter of 1786, these letters start coming and start getting very worrisome as, uh, as Washington gets these reports. So one dire letter from Knox to Washington dated October of 1786 with, with a link if you want to read it. Knox warns, quote, of a formidable rebellion against reason, the principles of all government, and the very name of liberty. This dreadful situation has alarmed every man of principle and property in New England. And the reason why they're talking about property is they're concerned that property confiscation and, you know, these rebellious farmers uh, are, are not protecting property rights. So Knox estimates that the Massachusetts rebels and their compatriots in Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire, number as many as 15,000 desperate and unprincipled men. So Knox is worried that actually he travels out to Massachusetts because he's trying to figure out what's going on, and he's worried that there could be up to 15,000 of these rebels who are causing problems and uh, inciting a rebellion in, in western Massachusetts. So I mentioned that the Henry Lee is a Virginia delegate to the con to Congress at the time, the Confederation Congress, and he speaks to Lee, and Lee speaks to Knox. And uh, Lee also sends a dire letter of warning to Washington. So in a letter from October of 1786 to Washington, Lee writes, and I'm going to quote a little bit of it, in all the eastern states, the same temper prevails, more or less, and will certainly break forth whenever the opportune moment may arise. Lee adds that the rebels were believed to be in negotiation, this is where it gets worrisome, with the governor of Canada for assistance from Britain. So they're worried, and this gets the rumor mill going, that uh, the, if the Shays Rebellion, that these farmers can get the British and the Canadians and the Indians or the Native Americans to help, then this can be a very serious problem. Quoting from the letter from Lee to Washington, in one word, my dear general, we are in dire apprehension that a beginning of anarchy with all its calamities has approached and have no means to stop the dreadful work. And Lee was not merely informing Washington that he wanted Washington to use his influence. He wanted Washington to actually come to New York and uh, to try to assist and tell these farmers to step step down and this is not what they had fought for. And what is Washington write back? So October 31st, people can read the letter, and I love reading Washington's letters. He's not the most artful. He doesn't write like a Hamilton or a Madison, but when you see the judgment and the wisdom in, in Washington's writings. So Washington responds that he was mortified beyond expression, and usually Washington doesn't write that way, but he's realizing this is getting serious. He's mortified beyond expression, and using uncharacteristic language for the usually sto stoic commander, Washington replies, and I'll read some of it. He says, the picture which you have drawn and accounts which are published of the commotions and temper, when he says accounts that are published, Washington is reading the papers, because all the papers are running with these stories about what's going on in Massachusetts. Washington describes that these accounts which are published of commotions and temper of numerous bodies in eastern states are equally to be lamented and deprecated. They exhibit a melancholy proof of what our transatlantic flows foes have predicted. So Washington's saying this is what they were predicting in Europe would happen if we tried to have our own country. So they, they exhibit a melancholy proof of what the transatlantic foes have predicted. And another thing, perhaps, which is still more to be regretted, 
And it is yet more unaccountable that mankind left to themselves are unfit for their own government. He's, he's worrying that, you know, are we going to be able to live up to our, so are, our, yes. our ideals? So are we today. Can we continue governing ourselves without losing our minds after trillions and billions of debt being just accumulated over time? Now, now that I'm stepping in here, you've got about 22 minutes to connect Reagan to Jefferson somehow okay. through the shades we of will, We will add more Or are you planning to end this on part one and we have to wait till part two because that's possible. Okay. We'll, we'll, de we'll definitely do it today. So let me, I think you'll appreciate this. I'm skipping through some of Washington's letters. So Washington makes clear that in his humble opinion, decisive action had to be taken. This is what Washington says in these, some of these are quotes. If insurgents had real grievances, it's his language, if they had real grievances, they should be acknowledged and addressed. If possible, he says. If not, if you can't address their grievances, and if their grievances aren't legitimate grievances, then, quote, this is Washington, the force of government should be deployed against them at once. So Washington doesn't fool around. If, if they have legitimate claims, you have to address their claims. If they're creating anarchy and they don't have legitimate cl claims, then government needs to react and you can't let people run amok. Right. And I, I think maybe that's a Republican principle is you need law and order. So Washington is a law and order guy here, but he's also sympathetic that uh, you have to find out. And I'll read some of what he's saying. He says, know precisely what the insurgents aim at. If they have real grievances, redress them if possible, or acknowledge the justice of their complaints and your inability to do it in the present moment. If they have not, employ the force of government against them at once. If this is inadequate, all will be convinced of the superstructure, uh, that the superstructure is bad or wants support. So Washington, you know, giving the reasons that you don't let a problem fester, you address it, you investigate it, you deal with it. And if people see that this is not working, and he adds, and this will add to their numbers for like snowballs, such bodies increase by every movement unless there is something in the way to obstruct and crumble them before the weight is too great and irresistible. So Washington is saying you got to do something. And, uh, you know, even Washington is concerned about this rebellion. So animated by these alarmist reports in the letter of Henry Knox dated December 26, Washington bemoans the conduct of these Massachusetts insurgents. And it's becoming clear that uh, you know, the nationalists, these are the Hamiltons and the Madisonians, realize that this is evidence that we need to give energy to the federal government. We need to fix the articles. And I invite people to go to the website, Statutes and Stories. I'm not going to read them all. And you can, you can go into the weeds of some of these letters, which really give a behind-the-scenes story of what's going on. Right, we will get to Jefferson. But the following year, it's now 1787, and the Constitution has been called because of the Annapolis Convention. And I'm, I'm making the point that it was Shays' Rebellion, which motivates... The, and gives the wind behind the sail. It gives the energy to, you know, have states attend and really take seriously the Constitutional Convention, which started in May of 1787. So when Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph gave his introductory speech at the Constitutional Convention, and I want to compare it to last week. Last week we talked about New York. New York only sent three delegates. Two of them didn't want to do anything, which were Lansing and Yates, and Hamilton was the only New York delegate that actually wanted to fix the problems and replace the articles. Virginia sent seven delegates. They sent their governor, Edmund Randolph. They sent George Washington. Virginia was going to take this very seriously, in part because they understood Shays Rebellion was a problem. So what does Edmund Randolph do when he gives his speech and he releases and, and sort of summarizes the – they put his name on it the, – the, the Virginia plan – Right. So when he gives his speech, that important speech at the Constitutional Convention, which is recorded in James Madison's notes, and there's a link so people can read it, he lists the failures of the articles. And here, connecting the dots, according to Edmund Randolph, and it was probably written by Madison, 
um, and it was written in Madison's notes, of course, because Madison took notes of the speeches. But in Edmund Randolph's speech, he lists these failures of the articles, and quote, he says that the federal government could not check the quarrels between the states, nor a rebellion in any, not having constitutional power nor means to impose according to the exigency. So again, the governor of Virginia speaking at the Constitutional Convention, Edmund Randolph, who would later become the first attorney general, you know, in his speech, he's pointing out that the federal government can't do anything. It's powerless. They could not check the quarrels between the states, nor rebellion in any. And the rebellion in any, of course, is Shays Rebellion. So he doesn't call it Shays Rebellion, but that's what he's talking about. All right. So let me give some of the economics. And this relates to Jefferson now and to Manny, where you want to go. And people can follow right along on the website. So after the Revolutionary War, and you saw this in Warren's letter, Americans went on buying spree, which was prompted by the British giving good credit for Americans because the British wanted to recapture American markets. And as described in one of the books that uh, that we used, the decision in Philadelphia, eight years of privation, privation had left them hungering for luxuries, clocks and rugs, glassware. Imagine a clock is a luxury. Let's see, sideboards from Europe and especially from England. They ordered goods recklessly paying for them or not paying for them on credit. So initially, we will admit, following the war, America experienced a little bit of an economic boost, but the boost was short-lived. The war had devastated America's economy and the percentage of the population of deaths during the Revolutionary War exceeded every other American war except for the Civil War. And some economic historians have estimated that up to 30 percent of the national income declined between 1774 and 1790. So in 25 years, the economy was down by 30 percent. If you look at national income, and uh, th- that is a serious economic dislocation, a 25% or 30% reduction in GNP from before the war until 1790. So while England was initially happy to extend credit to American buyers after the war, the British were not allowing American access for exports. They would allow Americans to buy but not to export. So we were having a lot of difficulty selling into the Caribbean or, or elsewhere. And during the mid-1780s, Americans, according to economic historians, imported three times as much as they exported. So if you're exporting less and you're importing more, your gold and your silver is going overseas to England, and you're, you're having a net drain of specie or hard currency. And then what happens by, 18, by 1785, British merchants started getting nervous and started tightening credit, and this economic situation begins to spiral. So in many states, conservatives responded by introducing austerity intended to protect private creditors from depreciating paper money, so they're worried about inflation. And uh, Congress in most states eventually decided to stop printing paper currency and revoked its status as legal tender. And as a result, consumers and taxpayers were required to pay with scarce hard currency. And the problem perpetuates itself when inflation reversed into deflation. Farmers were especially hard hit and farm income plunges. So you have this bad recession in the 1785 timeframe, 1786. It's particularly bad in Western Massachusetts. And in the midst of this recession, Massachusetts adopts a very regressive fiscal policy. It was the most regressive in the entire country. Massachusetts actually raises taxes during a recession rather than heeding these petitions from the rural farmers asking for relief. So we talked about how it triggered the Shays Rebellion. Uh, I'm going to skip through some of the economics. There's a section about this on the Post. And let's talk about the aftermath. And then we're going to get into where Manny wants to go. So as described... Me? I'm talking about... 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people in their cars holding only under their steering wheels waiting for you to compare Reagan to Jefferson. So Shays' Rebellion is referred to or described as hanging over a shadow, hanging over the old Congress, which gave Congress the impetus and urgency 
uh, for the Constitutional Convention. According to one of my favorite historians, John Kaminsky, and I'll have him on the radio one day, Shays' Rebellion had an enormous impact beyond Massachusetts. By October of 1786, the news of Shays' Rebellion had spread from one end of America to the other. And remember, Jefferson is in Paris. But news of the rebellion had spread all across the country just in time to reinforce the urgency of the Annapolis Convention call to meet in Philadelphia in 1787. Indeed, on February 21st, only three weeks after Shays' defeat of the Springfield Armory, the Confederation Congress officially approves the resolution drafted by Madison to call for states to attend the Constitutional Convention. All right, so uh, skipping through some of the other quotes, I'm going to skip ahead now to Jefferson. So go to the, uh, the Jefferson section of the article. So historian Gordon Wood, in his book, Revolutionary Characters, observes that, quote, Jefferson alone of the founding fathers was unperturbed by Shays' Rebellion. So according to Gordon Wood, a very famous historian, Jefferson alone of the founding fathers was unperturbed by Shays' Rebellion. Referring to Shays' Rebellion, Jefferson famously admitted, and there are a couple quotes now we're going to give, Jefferson famously admitted that, I like a little rebellion now and then. It's like a storm in the atmosphere. So Jefferson thinks, uh, you know, this can be healthy. You need the storm to generate rain. In a letter to Abigail Adams, and I give a link, February 22nd, 1787, Jefferson expressed the hope that, quote, the malcontents, so the malcontents he's talking about, Shays, and uh, they, so Jefferson says he's hoping that the malcontents would be pardoned, and eventually they were pardoned. Jefferson says the spirit of resistance to government is so valuable on certain occasions that I wish it to be always kept alive. So Jefferson is a revolutionary, or at least he's saying we need revolution against repressive government. Abigail Adams, and I give a letter that she had written, had written to Jefferson in January of 1787, expressing the view that the rebellion would prove salutary, even though it was led by ignorant desperados devoid of conscience and principles. I'm not going to read from Abigail Adams' letter, but people should go back and read it because she's also a very good writer. So later that year, this is the letter you want, Manny. Later that year, Jefferson would remark, and this is a very famous quote, you see this on placards at every Tea Party rally, and uh, I'm sure at Trump rallies, although I wouldn't know. So later that year, Jefferson would remark that, quote, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. And I give the full context of Jefferson's quote from November 13, 1787. And what is Jefferson talking about? That was a letter he writes to William Steffens. He's talking about Shays' Rebellion. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. And, you know, that's, that's fighting language, and we could debate about that. And it applies to January the 6th of this last year. And so, that's, again, that's the big symbol. I'm so happy you said that, because America needs to understand that's what January 6th was about, regardless of who initiated it, who, who, got out, who, who felt got out of hand, who was to blame. Every once in a while... I don't think there was as uh, I can say this, of course, being thousands of miles away from the D.C., but I think it was a, a great reminder, American reminder, unfortunately, that that, that blood was shed because people did die. But it was a great reminder for those elected officials to realize it's our house, the Capitol, regardless of what you think about the ethics and the morals and everything else about it. It was a reminder when those doors started banging back and forth like that. Those elected officials had to realize, you know what? Maybe we are out of hand and things just don't get done here and we behave this way. And guess what? The people get pissed off. 
Go back, Adam. Go back to the past. Let's go finish the story. So, I, I will respectfully disagree with you, and uh, these are other conversations we can have. Remember what uh, Mother Teresa said. You can't judge uh, today's events with the glasses of the past. And morality tends to supersede all things. And when we look about history in the past and the blood that was shed, uh, a lot of morality, uh, a lot of witnesses, you know, people who witnessed these events in their day and time and time and place felt just like you did, that it was just wrong and moral and ethical incitement, da 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 When in, when you look at it from a historical pers- perspective, I believe the Shays' Rebellion, the blood that was shed there, sent the message loud and clear to this new this new country. And, oh well, onward, my friend, onward, continue. That is, that is, the, that is the issue, is how do you shake things up and do it in a way which uh, is acceptable and lawful? So uh, let me t- connect the dots to Reagan. So we said that uh, Reagan is president in the 1980s. The Bicentennial Shays Rebellion, which was 1786, comes into, if I called it 1783 before I was wrong, 1786. So the revolution, Shays' Rebellion, 1786, is when Reagan's president. So what does he say? And he celebrates the bicentennial of Shays' Rebellion. And I've got a quote from Reagan. Uh, Reagan concedes that Shays' protests were put, put down forcefully, but it helped lead to the adoption of the United States Constitution, a blueprint for freedom. So the Constitution may not have developed, but for Shays' Rebellion. And I'm going to also give a Madison quote here. So decades later, this is 1823, uh, Madison is writing about uh, Jefferson, and, and you know, he was good friends with Jefferson, and they had a good, long relationship. So uh, he admits in 1823 that Jefferson had a habit, a quote, a habit, like other great geniuses, so Manny, maybe you're in good company, other great geniuses, of expressing in strong and round terms impressions of the moment and of the movement. So, uh, so you know, Madison isn't criticizing Jefferson, but pointing out that he has a habit of using strong and round terms things that uh, maybe are a little bit more nuanced. That's maybe the way that Madison describes it. But there's another historian who wrote the book. This is Sean Condon. Uh, this is a recent book about Shays' Rebellion, and he has a nice sort of a synopsis of Shays' Rebellion. We have a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to read from Sean Condon. He says, Shays' Rebellion highlighted the fact that a state like Massachusetts, which in many ways was relatively homogenous in terms of ethnicity, religious belief, and language. So Massachusetts, you know, is not a slave state. Massachusetts wasn't a state that had religious differences. It was fairly homogenous uh, in language and belief and ethnicity, etc., could still be deeply divided by economic, different economic and political cultures. And Condon notes that Shays' Rebellion raised, and this is, I think, one of your points, Manny, Shays' Rebellion raised critical questions about the rights and responsibilities of citizens. So what rights do they have? What responsibilities do they have of citizens who found certain governmental policies oppressive, along with the appropriate response of those responsible for maintaining order. Shays' Rebellion reinforces the important early lesson that this is something you'll fully agree with, the early lesson that identification with and loyalty to that fledging government are not automatic, but would need to be cultivated. You have to work with everybody or work with the protesters, potentially, um, and it depends who's protesting what they're protesting, maybe. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, think about it. Think about uh, the average you know, American who's not wealthy, uh, I think there was a study done about the people who attended the rally uh, on January the 6th were in debt in some way or form, lost a home, foreclosed on, bad credit, the whole thing. And then watch the it courts turn— Foreclosed turned... upon in the greatest economy under Reagan? What? I'm sorry, under— there's, uh, a lot, there's a lot of poverty in America. And, okay. 
always has been. And a lot of it is attributed to the progressive income tax, which is, you know, right out of the Communist Manifesto. Let's not go there. Progressive income tax is a reason for a lot of people's poverty. And the, the uh, I, I kind of lost my point there, but these people that are struggling and they see an entire court system that was approved in many ways, not approved, uh, approved of, uh, you know, Reagan's, no- I mean, sorry, here I go with Reagan, Trump's nomination. When they see the entire court system turn its back on on the court cases based on, on, on the, what's the famous word, founding, grounding? Uh, uh, standing. Standing, standing, thank you. Whew, what a relief, that was a senior moment. Uh, it, it's for you know, I don't expect these people to understand what denial of a court case based on standing means. But when they look to the courts as maybe the great equalizer, hey, maybe we have a shot, and they unanimously are, get their backs turned on them with no answer, no reply, no nothing. Yeah, the average person will say, well, because there wasn't a case. And that's not true. That's not what the courts were saying. They were saying that there wasn't a standing in the case. So some, of, some of the decisions, some are on the merits. We'll have to, one other day, we'll, we should talk about the, some of the lawsuits that we're seeing in the courts now, but that's another subject for another day. Yes, but you can see how people could take to arms, could take to violence, could take to blood, and that's my point. I hear you, and that's uh, it's been in American history. Hopefully, uh, if Jefferson would say you need it and it's healthy, and that's the underlying debate. So I'm going to end with Ron Chernow, and he has a, a good way of synthesizing things. So he observed, and remember, the context is that things were coming apart, Chase Rebellion, economic problems, the Spanish were chipping away at the New Orleans, the British and the Northwest. There were all kinds of economic problems. The states were going at each other. So Chernow observed that if ever, this is a quote from Chernow, if ever American history had a useful crisis, it occurred in western Massachusetts in the summer of 1786, a useful crisis. So a useful crisis can be a healthy thing from time to time. How's that? Perfect for a perfect ending. Thank you very much, Adam. That was the end of the Statues and Stories Hour. It's now very, very, very close to 8. I have 8. Do you have 8 or no? So I have 7.59. So next week we're going to do Shays Rebellion Part 2, and we're going to get into the weeds of some of these laws that were passed in Massachusetts. And I think there will be unanimous consensus that uh, these were overreactions. And uh, this is one of the things I love looking at is some of these old laws. And some of the names we're going to hear, Sam Adams, these were patriots during the Revolutionary War who are now sitting in a position of power. And in a way, they're acting similar to the way the British were acting. Yeah. So we will get into some of the details next week. Absolutely. So Take care, my friends. WSQF Blink Radio.